Hello and welcome to the latest Dairy Pod episode with me, Rory McDonald from Dairy Australia's farm team. Over the last few weeks, farmers in Australia have been dealing with the challenges caused by COVID-19 and we have had a great response to recent podcasts which have reflected on this massive issue and offered advice and guidance for dairy farmers. If you're after more information on COVID-19 resources and information specifically for dairy farmers, please check out the Dairy Australia website. For this podcast, however, we are changing direction slightly and discussing a different topic to COVID-19. Dr. John Roach was a keynote speaker at the recent Australian Dairy Conference held in Melbourne in February and has had a hugely successful career as a very highly regarded dairy scientist internationally. Even though John is a fellow countryman of mine originally, he has spent the majority of his career in this side of the world. He actually worked in Australia for a number of years as a dairy researcher in both Gibson and Tasmania, before a move to New Zealand where he spent several years at Dairy NZ, working as our principal scientist in animal science. John also runs his own consulting company, Down to Earth Advice, where he provides strategic and operating advice to companies and universities involved in dairy farming and research. It was great to catch up with John for a chat recently after he spoke at the ADC about some of the challenges facing dairy farmers in Australia. And I started by asking him what he felt were the main challenges. So the five issues I talked about were, were climate change, biosecurity, government regulations, um, you know, how we equip ourselves to be able to make the best decisions in our, in our businesses, and then public sentiment. Um, the climate change one, people might argue that that's outside of our sphere of influence, but I don't think it is. Yeah. Climate change is here. We're seeing it. You know, the, the evidence in, in the Australian statistics are that the, you know, both the land and sea temperatures have risen one degree over the yeah. last 100 years. There's been a, a very significant increase in the number of very hot days over the last 20 years compared with the 80 years beforehand. Um, so all of the statistics are, are there and and the meteorological scientists do believe that this, these trends of hot days and uh, hotter average temperatures is going to continue. That they're reasonably confident as well that we will see a reduction in cool season rainfall, which of course is yeah. of incredible importance to a pasture-based system. Um, less sure of what happens in summer and autumn, but certainly hot weather. So, how would you see that kind of manifest itself in, in a dairy farm for the typical kind of classical dairy farm in Australia? Sure. Well, I mean, the the obvious one. Australia has extreme climates anyway, and what you're seeing is uh, that becoming even more extreme. So your hot days become more frequent, and they become hotter. So heat stress in cows becomes a, a greater reality, for example. Um, and where that falls within our sphere of influence, though, is there is there's a lot of things that we can do there. And there's been a lot of great research done in Australia to, yeah. to deal with that. Um, you know, whether that's, whether that's shade or whether that's nutrition, some excellent work done by Melbourne Uni, for example, on, um, on, on feeds that cause a cow to get warmer versus yeah. more neutral feeds. Um, and of course, cow genetics, you know, we can breed for heat tolerance, yep. we can breed for a more resilient cow. And all of that work is being done both here in Australia and around the world. And I know a number of, a number of the researchers that are working in that space and, you know, there has been some excellent research done. So, although climate change may be outside the sphere of influence of the farmer, um, managing or making a plan to deal yeah. with climate change. Is it's all about adaption, really, isn't it? it is. And being able to kind of 
adapt to those challenges and changing environments that we're getting year on year it seems to me as well that it's getting more and more unpredictable seasons are almost merging into each other and sure. and and that presents its own challenges at a systems level as well it does i mean i've been i've been in australia for the last week and i spent i mean i spent over six years in australia and february's you could nearly take them to the bank that you'd be in shorts and a t-shirt uh um earlier this week i was i was running around town in between showers trying to find an umbrella yeah. and it was cold yeah exactly <laughs> so, and you can see it at the moment in many parts of Gippsland, for example, Absolutely. Western Victoria, they're having a really strong seasons in terms of pasture growth that Absolutely. you wouldn't normally get this time of w- year. Western South Gippie look like New Zealand, and New Zealand looks like uh, Western Gippie, uh, yeah. basically, at the moment. And the North Island of New Zealand is, is under a relatively severe drought. Yeah, and ha- how has it changed in New Zealand? Um, has climate change affected the, 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 the traditional farming system in New Zealand in recent years? Um, it, it has. Well, I suppose it's done a couple of things. So if I talk with the, the, the farmers uh, that have been around a long time, they will tell me that you know what they saw once in every five years they're now probably seeing once every three, once every two possibly. Mm-hmm. So where we would get a bad, dry summer that would mean very short lactations, um, Having happening once every five, they're now happening once every two to three, which has led farmers to um, uh, in- incorporate supplementary feeds in places where they wouldn't have historically. Yeah. Um, now some of that is conservatism, and um, but but some of that is is necessary. So it's almost becoming well. a bit more like Australia might have been twenty Absolutely. years ago. Or Absolutely, or uh, it's very less. very 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 similar to um, again the traditional dairy regions of West and South Gippy, or Central and South Gippsland, um, during the 90s when I was here, absolutely. Yeah. Certainly very similar to parts of Tasmania. And if you were to look at Northland now, uh, or even the Waikato, you wouldn't, you'd be forgiven for um, not comparing it to Western Victoria, even during dry summers yeah. during the late 90s. Interesting, yeah, and I guess, like, historically everyone or traditionally everyone in australia has this perception of zealand as a pasture grown place where you can grow grass pretty much all year round and and you have a very kind of a strict a, a clearly defined system of 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 dairy farming whereas it's a bit more complex in australia um but that as you said seems to be changing quite a bit as well it, it's changed but it hasn't changed enormously i don't want to give that impression either i mean it is still very much a seasonal calving seasonal spring calving uh, production system with the vast majority of that milk, 85 to 90 percent of that milk coming from grazed grass. Yeah. Um, but what has happened in in some of the the more um, unpredictable regions, that unpredictability is becoming more common, and so you're seeing inputs of supplements there where you haven't in the past. And with that, of course, there there's also been with with higher milk prices, you've seen increases in stocking rates in a number of those uh, farming systems as well. And so mm. that. Uh, together with the unpredictability, it's probably raising the risk profile of the farm. Raises the risk profile. Yeah, of the yeah, that exactly. sounds very familiar to probably a lot of Absolutely. farms in Australia that uh, that you would probably see in, in depending on what part of the country. I'd say so in any part of the country, really. John Mulvaney yeah. used to joke uh, during the 1990s of Kiwi farmers coming out to Western Victoria and putting five cows to the hectare on because yeah. the springs look so good, and then. You know, came. November and December came and, and they were getting rid of cows pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, so that's, um, it's probably, there's a lot of commonality really between the two countries when you look at 
very some much of the so. challenges there. Like we're, yeah. we're, we're, uh, well, New Zealand is more export dependent now than Australia. Australia's got a far larger um, population, obviously, and a far smaller dairy industry. So it's not as dependent on the external market. So yeah. we're, we're probably more prone to milk price shocks from geopolitical issues than Australia. Yeah, I noticed that um, in your five uh, challenges, you didn't really go down the road of milk prices, um, variation and volatility in milk prices that much. Is, do you think that's a challenge or is it less of a challenge? Uh, no, no, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a challenge. Like in, in our production systems where farmers get told, uh, get, get a prediction of what milk price will be in the next 12 months, um, uh, they, they take all the risk on that. So they're, they're defining their system by what they've been told. And if they've been given a, a, a prediction that the milk price is going to be high, what you tend to find is they incorporate a lot more supplements into their system, produce more milk to try and yeah. capture the benefit of doing that. Um, and if something happens during the year to change that predi prediction downwards, then they've already produced that milk. And um, yeah, and, and this happened in Murray, the Murray Goldburn situation in 2016 was a classic example. It, it, of, it did absolutely, of that. and it happened. It happened in the milk price shock of 2014, 2015 as well globally. As yeah. you know, we came out of a really high milk price. The prediction was for another high milk price. And then a number of geopolitical issues, whether it's you know China uh, stepping back from the purchasing table, uh, the Russian-Ukrainian situation, and the drop in the price of oil. I mean, when you think about it, uh, the collective oil nations buy as many as much dairy products as China does. Russia, yeah. the second largest purchaser of dairy products in the world. So those three geopolitical issues at the same time had a big effect. Yeah, took took all, took, took the three largest purchaser of milk out of the world. Yeah, John, um, I just thought uh, it would be good to talk about uh, one of the aspects that you're really focused on today as well was the quality of a farmer's decision making. You think that's a real area where there's opportunity for farmers to have real control and it's also a, a quite a strong challenge that's facing farmers. Uh, look, absolutely. So when you think about it, I, I, have, I have the utmost admiration for, for farmers because they're, they've got to be agronomists, nutritionists, veterinarians, engineers, and, and everything, you know, virtually every profession that we need down to almost that of a priest giving, giving last rites to an animal on its, on its last legs, you know. So there's an incredible number of skills um, there. Um, but as, as we move from smaller businesses to larger businesses, those skills, um, the, the skills that are required to run those tend to be very much business focused skills financial acumen, um, understanding strategic planning, understanding corporate governance, things like that. And so that's the difference between a, a, a traditional 100 cow, 150 cow operation and your bigger 1,000 cow herds. Uh, absolutely. Well, a 150 cow operation is that person and maybe some casual labor and, and, they, and they're, whereas a 1,000 cow farm, that person is managing people rather than milking cows yeah. anymore. And, and so that's a very different skill set. Um, yeah. Again, one that doesn't often come naturally to us. So it's a, it's a leadership skill set. And then, of course, any change with scale, any change is bigger and comes with greater risk because there's more money tied up in it. And, and that's what I was probably talking more about this morning was for, for people to, to actually um, you know, do, define their own goals. I think, I think that's one of the most important things. Um, I see it all over the world that that people follow other people rather than defining their yeah. own goals. And the, and the, uh, the example I gave, gave this morning was I was I, I had the opportunity back when I was a little bit younger to, to work with a private equity firm and we were, we were designing, um, designing the plans to build a 70,000 cow dairy business. 
100, 700 cow farms. And um, yeah. I was at home in Ireland um, uh, talking with some farmers and this came up, what, you know, what, what was my new project? What was I working on now? And of course, I'm talking to farmers that are milking 70 cows and I'm talking about milking 70 And they think 70 cows, 70 cows is a big farm. Exactly, <laughs> it was, that's yeah. exactly right. And, and, and it was in those days and, and run very well, you know, reared families and put families through, through college and things like yep. that. So extraordinarily well-run operations. But I was, I was talking about this, this behemoth of a, of, a, of a farming business. And I, I just remember the advice my father gave afterwards. Told me, he said, you know, you, you've only got one family to feed. How many yeah. cows do you need to milk? And, and that kind of sat with me. I, I mean, I thought about it for a while. And, you know, when I was 20, I didn't think my father knew anything. By the time I turned 40, I was amazed at how much he had learned in 20 years. Yeah. It was just yeah. an extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinary life experience. But that, that sat with me because during, um, you know, during the latter part of the, of the noughties, I was involved in dairy businesses in the U.S. They got caught up as distressed assets in the, um, in the United States. And um, those years, three years in particular, um, uh, I, I spent, we, we clocked them up, myself and my wife, I, I spent 200 nights away from home each of those years. Yeah, you were no, still based in New Zealand at that time. I, I was still, I was, I was based in Tassie at the start of it, and then I was based in New Zealand uh, afterwards. And, um, and so I, I had a young child. I had, uh, Ryan was two, three, and four, and I missed, you know, I didn't see him crawl for the first time. I didn't yeah. see him walk for the first time. Um, I didn't see him roll over for the first time. In fact, the day he rolled over, I was driving from, from Gippsland through to Melbourne Airport to hop on a flight to go to the United States, and my wife rang me around packing him and told me yeah. that he had rolled over for the first time. So I missed all those milestones. Yeah. And I'll never. And that comes at a cost. I mean, it mightn't be a, a dollar value cost, but, you know, you talk about you know, your goals other than financial and, and, and they could have been you know, compromised in that scenario. Uh, look, yeah. they, they were compromised. I didn't know it at the time. Um, I mean, as I said this morning, there's no point in being the richest man in the graveyard. You know, there's no, there's no pockets in a coffin yeah. and there's no tow hitch on a hearse. You're not yeah. taking it with you. So um, it, it really changed my, my view of where I wanted to go. Um, and it's possibly one of the reasons why I did seek out um, public service as well. Um, I mean, I, re I loved working with dairy farmers in my multiple roles in, in different countries, etc. Um, and, and this was just an opportunity to, to actually engage with the machinery on the other side and, yeah. and try and add value to society as a whole, including uh, dairy, yeah. dairying to make sure that, you know, all of our regulations are science based. Yeah. Um, and that um, all the nuances associated with that and the uncertainties associated with science are, are taken into account. Yeah. And it was something that you, you obviously learned some some lessons that have stayed with you, you know, a, a long time. Oh, look, yeah. I, it took me a long time to realize that people that didn't take my advice, uh, you know, weren't out to get me. That yeah. I, I didn't I shouldn't take it personally. And that comes, that comes with a bit of age, I suppose. Um, I'm a little bit longer in the tooth and shorter in the hair than I was, you know, during my days in Australia. And, um, and so I genuinely want to see uh, the world a better place when I leave it than when I came into it. Uh, and to do that, I think we have to engage with people that we wouldn't have necessarily engaged with. Yeah. The fact that we just produce high quality food for them isn't enough anymore. We need to tell them that. We need yeah. to show them visuals of that. And we need to explain to them why our food is actually a better choice for them, um, both for them nutritionally, for them from a sustainability point of view. Um, and, and I think the majority of people are open to having that conversation. Yeah. So at a farm level then, you know, you, you spoke about um, 
you know, farmers, the biophysical decisions get much more higher risk as you grow the size of your farm businesses and defining your goal is, is, a, is a key aspect of that. And doing your research as well, like, yeah, if you feel that's really important. Uh, absolutely. Look, uh, yeah, when you're, when you're spending any appreciable amount of money, it's, it's important to find out, you know, who's done this, what, what did they find, and try and dig a bit deeper because as human beings, we, we buy an emotion and we justify on logic. Yeah. So even if we made a mistake, you know, you, you buy that 80 inch TV so you can watch the footy and you get it home and it's on the wall and it's a little bit too big, actually. And maybe a 70 inch would have done. I could have saved a grand. Yeah. You're never going to admit that to yourself. You know, the 80, yeah. the 80 inch is a far better quality. And you're you know, going to justify it in your own right. head. The, then, yeah. the, the footy is the same size as it would be if I was holding it in my hand. <laughs> you know, so we're, we're, we are consumers and we buy an emotion, justifying logic. And so when you're talking to people, try and dig through that. Try, try and, and really get to the nub of what was good about this what was bad about this what yeah. is this going to deliver for me and don't be afraid to ask what was bad about it and not Absolutely. some people sometimes have a preconceived bias and they just want to hear yeah. the right thing to justify their Absolutely. decision but you shouldn't ignore something that maybe is a red flag as well That's in, in this right. yeah. and, and obviously the importance of this becomes uh, more even greater with the permanency of the decision so if you were if you were making a decision that I'm going to put on another 50 cows well, if that's the wrong decision, then you can always get rid of 50 yeah. cows. So if, if you were making the decision, I need to build a freestall barn, then that's a pretty yeah, big You're tying that capital, capital up there. Absolutely. Yeah, there's yeah. no backing out. That's exactly yeah. right. So you'd want, to be, you'd want to be absolutely sure that you want to make those types of big capital purchases, um, yeah. that they are going to deliver the value they want, and that there aren't other negatives associated with them that you haven't anticipated. So yeah, so yeah absolutely, to do your research. Um, uh, consider the consequences. We need to do a continuous upskilling as well. You know, um, you should be learning something new every day, and um, you know, as part of continuous improvement, you should be lining yourself up for for courses, whether they're formal or informal, or or, or discussion seek, groups, seeking mentorships. Like yep. Discussion groups are always a great thing, and you know, sometimes sometimes uh, people think, oh look, I've heard, I've been to so many discussion groups. It's always the same thing at the same time of the year. Yeah. And that's all well and good, but you know, sometimes actually knowing that everybody else is in the same situation as you is quite good. Yeah. And being able to talk through those problems um, uh, or take, talk through the opportunities. Yeah, exactly. It's I think there's a lot of value in, in particular, I've always felt myself, there's a lot of value in revisiting courses you mightn't have been at for three or four years, especially if they're technical enough courses where there's, you know, you can, min you can remember a aspects of it, but often we find people come back that go through a feeding pastures for profit course or a transition management course and that they might have done a few years previously and they always say oh yeah it really really refreshed what what we had learned there yep. you know a few years back and and I, i'd forgotten about that but yeah. but yeah so well unless unless you're doing something every day uh, you know it, it, it won't become ingrained you just forget, you it. forget about <laughs> yeah. it that's right yeah exactly you are what you do every day yeah so um i thought that um we just talk a little bit john more about the uh um, some of the areas that you have some fairly kind of strong opinions on, you know, you know in your consultancy career and in your science career as well, um, the cost of production and um, the importance of monitoring your cost of production in dairy farming, you feel is really critical in a pasture-based setting, especially. Uh, absolutely. Look, it's it's something. Um, it's it, I think it's something that most people do shy away from because 
you know, we, we go into dairy farming because we love animals, uh, largely, you know, if we didn't, then we could go cropping and, uh, you know, you, you, don't, you don't have to get up at four o'clock in the morning to milk cows on a daily basis. Uh, so there's that aspect of it and, and bookkeeping uh, can take a back seat or, or can be just left to the accountants to, to deal with. But the cost of production, it doesn't matter where I've gone in the world, the data is, are the same, whether it's in Australia or New Zealand or in, in Europe. Um, the, the, cost, the, the, the amount, the dollars it costs to produce a litre of milk or a kilo of milk solids is the strongest barometer for the profitability per hectare. And so the greater the cost of production, the low, the the decline in the operating profit per hectare. Yeah. So so the average operating expenses are very important, and it and it should be a total operating expenses. You know, there's there's a number of groups that offer offer those types of benchmarking services, and and you yeah. know, if you're running a business, you should understand where you sit relative to your peers. The only caveat in there is it can hide a lot of sins as well. So you can have what looks like a relatively low uh, operating expenses. So, for example, if we said the average person had an operating expenses of, I'll pick a, pick a number of $3.50, well, you know, their neighbor having an operating expenses of $3.75 possibly wouldn't look out of place to them. But you can dig into those deeper. Um, and again, these benchmarking services allow us to do this. Um, and, and what that could quite possibly mean is that that neighbor is actually producing milk that's costing them five, six, seven plus dollars. Yeah, because not every kilogram of milk solids costs the same. That's and exactly right. We, we, we spoke about this in a previous podcast with, uh, with John Mulvaney, but it's actually something I think is really important. It's worth, uh, it's worth going, going back over, uh, you know, the, the concept of marginal milk. Um, sure. You know, could you, in, in, a, in, your, in, your, in your head, could you define what you feel is, is marginal milk? There are some people who argue that it's a few different things and oh, there's different I, definitions to absolutely. it. Absolutely. Uh, well, there, and there is. So to me, is the marginal milk is, is the milk that is produced uh, by when, when you make a change to your system. Now, that could be anything from putting on more cows, putting on more fertilizer, putting in more supplements, uh, buying machinery, or actually the opposite, um, milking once a day. And, and yeah. so the milk that you get from milking twice a day versus once a day is technically marginal milk. That's the, the milk that comes uh, in the margins from doing that extra work yeah. and from putting in those extra expenses in terms of electricity, rubberware, etc., things like that. So, so marginal milk is the additional milk you produce or the, the milk foregone in the case of once a day when you change your farming system. Um, unfortunately, it's, it kind of got hijacked in a, in a debate on supplementary feeding. So it was the milk that was produced from supplements versus the milk that came from grass. And yes, in the extremes, you could argue that that's what it is as well. But um, I would yeah. like to say is, you know, if you're, you're running a grazing system and you're feeding, let's say 500 kilograms of, of supplement, purchase supplement a cow, and you decide I'm gonna increase stocking rate and I'm gonna feed a ton of supplement a cow, then the marginal milk is the difference between yeah. those two systems. And that's where the costs can potentially go up if you're not able to, if you're not willing to separate that out from the total average. Well, they, they do go up. I mean, that's, there's no question about that. Um, and we've got plenty of evidence across multiple countries to show that the costs go up. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Yeah. Because as long as the cost of the marginal milk is less than the milk price, you're still making money on that yeah. marginal milk. So, so marginal milk isn't inherently bad. But where, where people tend to fall down, in my experience, is they, they do a partial budget. So they say, feed is costing me, uh, 20, let's say, 20 cents a kilogram. 
uh, feeding costs are costing me two cents a kilogram, so it's costing me 22 cents a kilogram to feed this supplement. Um, I'm going to get a liter of milk from each kilo of supplement, and I'm getting paid 30 cents a liter for my milk. Therefore, I'm making an eight cent margin. Yeah. That. So that type of partial budget is, is inherently misleading because you haven't factored in a lot of the other costs that come with that. Um, so generally speaking, in a pasture-based system, if you are going to increase supplementary feeding use, you need to increase stocking rate to try and maintain that pasture utilization. So you've incurred an enormous amount of fixed costs in particular and a reasonable amount of, of uh, variable costs to produce the pasture that you have in front of the cows. Yeah. Um, and so pasture utilization is strongly linked to profitability. And you know we have loads of information from yeah. Australia and other places to support that. Um, and so what people fail to realize is that increase in stocking rate has quite significant costs associated with it. So 55 to 60% of the costs of a dairy business are per cow costs. Yeah. So it's not just the feed and feeding because that extra cow or that extra proportion of a cow now has a vet made an AI bill. It has, uh, it, 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 it will have a labor bill associated yeah. with it. And, and these do vary, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not arguing that one size fits all here, yeah. but when we've, um, when we've analyzed it, it it's been incredibly um, consistent across dairy systems. So I've had the opportunity to analyze this in, the, in, in uh, New Zealand. I've had the opportunity to analyze it in Ireland, and we've published both of those, and I've had an, an opportunity to work with AHDB in the United Kingdom and look at their, their database as well. And without exception, for every $1 spent on feed, total expenses go up about $1.50 to $1.60. Yeah. Now, in individual locations, individual regions of New Zealand, for example, it can go up between $1.80 and $2. So you're saying, just to be clear there, when you go and you spend a dollar on a kilogram of, for, in, in, for this, in this case, bought-in supplement concentrate, we can, yep. we can say, um, it's costing you more than a dollar to actually feed that. It's costing you a dollar fifty on average Absolutely. to actually feed it. On, on, on a, and that's a good point, though. It's on average. Um, and so there'll be farms that can do that a little bit better. And there'll be farmers that are paying a heck of a lot more from that. Because there'll be farmers in Australia you now, I can hear them saying, look, I'm already feeding three or four kilos of grain in my dairy. I'm, I'm just going to turn up the dial and give them an extra kilo. I can't really see in my head where sure. the dollar the extra 50% cost is coming from on top of that. Um, so, how, would, how would you respond to that? Oh, uh, well, there's, so, um, there, there's, there's one of two ways where that extra cost is coming from. A, uh, you, you feed the cows more, they refuse pasture. There's, it's as simple as that. That's substitution. It's as, it's as real a law of nature as gravity is. Yeah. So when you when you feed a cow more, she refuses pasture, and that's just the, her neuroendocrine uh, system working within her brain and her gastrointestinal tract. So you replace cheap feed with expensive feed potentially. Yeah. yeah. Not not completely replace it, but you will see a reduction in yeah. pasture, and you've already paid for that. So you're not getting the milk from that and yet you've paid the cost for it and that cost then goes on top of the marginal milk yeah. because so that's one way or alternatively you've bought in that feed you're absolutely not going to waste more pasture so you buy more cows to eat the grass that they're leaving behind and those cows bring additional costs uh, whether it's labor whether it's you know um, whether it's uh, vet med and ai or even uh, you know if we're using feeding machinery more often it's repairs just going to say that up, you know Actually, it's interesting, and there's a, if anyone wants to look it up, there's a paper that's free and now in the Journal of Dairy Science, published by myself back in 2015, where we analyze the Irish National Database. And granted, it's Ireland, it's not Australia, um, but it's the same as what we've seen everywhere. Every single cost 
goes up when we intensify a system. Yeah. Um, and so feed cost goes up. You guys, well, that's obvious. You put in feed, feed cost goes up. Uh, feeding costs, you'd, you'd assume they would go up because you're obviously having to put in some effort into feeding it. But virtually every other cost in the system, so so-called fixed costs. So people talk fixed about fixed costs is misleading, really, isn't it? It's, it's I, I believe it is. I try and encourage people to call them mixed costs or overheads or something. Like overheads. That. There's a mixture of fixed and variable in most of them. So if you think about electricity, your line charges are fixed. Your use yeah. of electricity is not fixed. It's a it's a variable cost. Yeah. And, you know, if you if you have longer lactations, milking more cows for longer lactations, then your electricity bill goes up. I'm not saying it's astronomical. But yeah. all of these things add up and yeah. they must be factored in to the budgeting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it's um, it's um, it's interesting to put that because I've seen that um, I've seen I've seen that that dollar that that figure of a dollar fifty or dollar fifty three per every dollar spent on on supplement, um, they're uh, been bandied around quite a bit in the industry uh, over the years with different discussions between Irish farmers, New Zealand farmers, Aussie farmers even, um, and uh, even though. It isn't the data wasn't collected in Australia. Do you feel, given that the, the Australian dairy farming systems are much more complex and different between regions, that that might not translate as well as it has between, say, Ireland and New Zealand, where they are very similar? Sure. So if we, if, if we look at the UK dairy system, which is large farms like Australia, a lot of supplement being fed, etc., then uh, for every one pound an English farmer spends on feed, their total costs go up a pound sixty, in the data that we've been able to analyse. So it's been it's been highly conserved across those dairy systems. But I do I do want to be very very clear here. I'm not suggesting for a second that supplements aren't a part of of an Australian dairy yeah. system. Um, we're very very fortunate where we dairy farm in New Zealand. We've got a. Uh, an extraordinary biological advantage in terms of, of rainfall patterns and, and temperatures and so we've been able to run those types of systems with very low use of supplements or very low need for supplements. The Australian system apart from you know a few small regions and even they um, you know even they have unpredictable weather patterns um, yeah. require that supplement but what I'm I suppose what I'm um, suggesting is that you, you define your system, you define your stocking rate that will best suit your farm on the basis of a yeah. grass growth profile, and then you plug the gaps with supplements. Yeah. So in the Irish scenario, um, the, the, the data are fairly clear that the optimum is somewhere between 300 and 500 kilograms of supplement per cow. That allows, that allows the Irish system to buffer the shoulders, utilize the grass, and make silage for the winter period. So it works very, very well. In New Zealand, it's probably less than that. But I mean, I see exceptional farmers, uh, you know, managing managing their systems at very low costs with uh, 200 to 300 kilograms of supplement going in. And what you, what you got to remember is that's that's two to three kilos of cow for 100 days. Yeah. That, that's a reasonable uh, proportion of the animal's diet, daily diet, for a fairly considerable period of time. Yeah. If you're considering yourself a pasture... Um, that's right i think that's probably one of the differences between new zealand and, and australia like that that would be probably considered quite low input oh, yeah. uh, as you know um pretty well pretty and, clearly and, and, and probably inappropriate so i'm not recommending yeah. it for here all i'm suggesting is and it's one of the points i was making is make your plan yeah don't follow your neighbor's plan you said don't, don't be a sheep don't be a sheep yeah. that's exactly right we're dairy farmers so make your plan uh you know your neighbors will be able to give you a good indication of what the grass growth profile is um you know if you're going to high levels of feeding do you want the mechanization that comes with that do you want the labor uh that comes with that do you need do you depreciation want the, depreciation um there's a whole pile of things that come with that 
not saying it's the wrong pathway to go because for some people it's what they want There's probably to do. an increased skill level absolutely involved with intensification as well on the absolutely. farmers um point well, of view, which and, and i didn't show it this morning but i've got some very good data out of the uk where your your top 20 percent of farmers can run whatever system they want they yeah. they're the best of the best it's you consistent could, they, here as well yeah, absolutely yeah. they could they, they could go they could leave the farm and they could go into the town managing a factory and that factory would make the best damn widgets around you know and that and that business would be profitable they're exceptional individuals unfortunately for average people like me we can only dream of being like those people and so the the top at a 28 pence milk price in the uk the top 20 percent sorry yeah top 25 percent of dairy farmers had to milk 50 cows to earn the average national wage so the same wage as a teacher or a nurse not yeah. the average industrial wage the average national wage it was exactly the same in ireland the top 20% of Irish farmers had to milk 50 cows to earn the average national wage at the same milk price. The average grazing farmer has to milk 135 cows to earn the average national wage. So that's the difference between your top 25% and your average. Yeah. 50 cows versus 135. So do you think that the variation from the top to the bottom in those farms is is of the same magnitude in every country you're, you've I'm, worked I'm sure in? it is. Everywhere I've gone... The best, the best farmers in any country could be the best farmers in any country. Um, yeah. And like I said, if you took the, if they decided on a different occupation, they would be the best in that occupation. They've got an attention to detail and they've got an ability to prioritize decision making that is peculiar and it's it's an unusual inherent story. almost like it it's is, intuitive absolutely. or whatever you want. Absolutely, yeah. but but they they know they know what their priorities are. So someone like me, I've got fifteen jobs. I step in, I do job one, job two, job three, job four. It could be job 14 was the most important job for me to do, but by the time I get to it, I'm jaded, and so I don't do it as well. A good farmer will see that job 14 is the first one, and that's the first job they should do. Um, but just, just to finish on those statistics, so the, the top 20% of grazing farmers or, or housed farmers in the UK have to milk 50 cows. The average grazing farmer has to milk 130 cows. The average housed farmer has to milk 400 cows. Wow. And that's the difference. So the complexity leads to a greater number of mistakes yeah. uh, and, and slippage in a number of different system, uh, different areas. So although the best of them are equally profitable, yeah, there's a big difference between the average in those different Something systems. that's happened in recent times uh, in Australia is we've had people who have maybe had to drift from one system from what it might have been termed a traditional system uh, towards a more intensive system pro probably due to environmental and water constraints and other regulatory issues and that's probably would you say that there's a higher risk there or there's a challenge there for those farmers there's there's certainly uh, i can't say there's a higher risk because obviously that would depend on each example um because obviously if you've got no water to grow grass you've no other food source there's a bigger risk if you don't feed the if you don't feed the animals, but there's certainly it's uh, into I believe to the average person and to the majority of people it is more challenging. There is more decisions to be made whether that's getting on the phone to buy feed at the right price at the right quality, have it delivered at the right time, or deciding on what ration needs to be fed, or or they're all decisions you can get wrong that can just affect you. They, they are, and they're yeah. look to be fair, they're decisions you can also farm out, uh, yeah. but that those that that service costs money so so there's there's challenges associated with it but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean it isn't uh, it can't be a, a very profitable system as well yeah obviously. yeah and i think there are good examples of that in in the dairy base uh, and the dairy farm monitor project data that um that 
that Dairy Australia has um, has collected. You know, you know the the sen- the consensus seems to be that, as you said earlier, the best farmers can be from any system. Absolutely. But that's probably because they're just the best at what they do, as opposed to the particular system. You could argue. Absolutely, and and what they need to be um, certain of is that they've got a succession plan, that they've got management and two ICs around them, that they can leave, and the farm will still run very effectively yeah because yeah you don't want to be tied to a farm 365 days of the year yeah, uh, yeah. My, my wife would probably be happy with that if it was me <laughs> but she doesn't want to be tied to the farm 365 yeah yeah no that's uh, that's fair enough um i think uh, we'll just finish up uh, john by just asking you if you were to name a couple of things that you, th- you feel are future concerns or you know future things that are popping up on the horizon in the next few years a farmer should really kind of be aware of in, in this context in terms of decision making and and that what would be the initial thing that might spring into your head look the, the first thing is what we started talking about is is, is climate climate changes here climate change people can argue that climate change is always here and that's and that's fair enough it was and and australia australia is a country of of reasonably extreme climates my my great-grandfather left Australia in the 1880s to go back to Ireland and um, if he didn't leave when he did he probably wouldn't have been able to because the Federation drought hit shortly afterwards and he was he had a sheep station out west of Mount Isa so he was you know in a, in a very extreme region for, for that type of system um, so it, and, and, and Australian farmers have a, have, have a proud and, and excellent tradition of dealing with climatic changes but just recognize that we are dealing with these, they are coming fast and furious, and we need to be prepared for them. So that's one. Um, two, I, I believe, um, you know, the, the social license to farm is important. And, uh, you know, people people uh, don't like government setting regulations. Um, well, yeah, we didn't really touch on that a little bit, but it's important. No, that's right. They, they don't like, and, and, they, and, and I, I can understand that because once regulations come in, you're forced into action. But re- governments regulate as a last resort. They, they are the regulators of last resort. They only regulate where the industry hasn't self-policed. And so when we're dealing things like our environmental footprint, our animal welfare, our care, care of animals, um, our uh, responsibilities uh, towards our staff and, and towards ourselves, etc. Yeah. Um, uh, where, where we fall down on those, the government has an obligation to come in and regulate. If we want to avoid that, then we, we need to address that ourselves yeah, as and an that, industry. It's interesting, the animal welfare thing is, uh, as you said, if people were treating animals, everyone was 100% correct in the animal welfare space, well, we wouldn't need any, we wouldn't be talking about government regulations or any government That's right. uh, uh, intervention of any kind, which is, uh, you know, that, that phrase about the regulators of last resort really is actually well, well worth kind of taking home and considering uh, um, yeah uh, thanks very much John I think that was a really good chat I think there was a wide ranging discussion there and, and there's a lot of t- areas and uh, as you said dairy farmers are people who have to be thinking about several different things and be skilled in several different areas and, and I think you've enc- encapsulated that in, in the conversation and um, yeah we really appreciate your time and, oh, and pleasure. my thanks to John for that wide ranging discussion outlining some of the thoughts and the key challenges and considerations for Australian dairy farmers into the future. That's it for this episode of Dairy Pod. You can catch up on any previous episodes on SoundCloud or on Apple Podcasts. And I'm also pleased to say that the podcasts are now available on Google Podcasts as well for you to subscribe to. Till next time, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.